Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. If you're new here, my name is Peter Anderson. We're glad you're at church today. Um, I'm the senior pastor here at FBH and and glad you're with us as we continue uh, this holiday season. If you were here last week, man, last week was, uh, was a whole lot of fun uh, for most people. Uh, kids were great. Tree lighting was, uh, was awesome. Love celebrating communion with you all. But, but I was wrecked by a cold last week. So you second service people, you heard my voice crack like three or four times. Um, I struggled to get, uh, to get, get through everything. Uh, the good news, I feel much better this week. So for those of you who are praying for me, thank you. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, I'm definitely on the upswing with, uh, with everything. Uh, but as we kind of start talking about Christmas time and different things like that, we start talking about the end of the year, uh, start talking about end of the year giving. Um, and one thing that a lot of people don't know is actually not just our church, but, but many nonprofit organizations rely on uh, the end of year giving portion to to make up for lack of giving for the rest of the year. Um, and so really Christmas, the end of year giving December, um, that accounts for almost two months worth of our, of our expenses for the rest of the year. Now, like we've said on a regular basis this year, you guys have done a great job, you've been faithful, we really, really appreciate it. Finances isn't something that we've had to overly concern ourselves with, but we're at a point right now where we really, really, really want to not just take care of this year, we want to we fund ministry for the next 20 years to come based on giving that is happening this year. And so as I talked about a couple weeks back, we, we, we want to embark on this big solar project next year. And we truly believe that, that we have the money in the room to be able to build and fund that project um, uh, uh, without having to finance anything. Our goal is to not have to finance anything. We will finance things if we need to. Um, but, but that being said, end of your giving, if you're a business, if, if you need to catch up on your giving or whatever it may be, please don't forget about FBH as we kind of come into that, that the end, end of the year in the next, uh, next couple weeks. But that being said, we're continuing to push into our Christmas series called the, the Incarnation. Um, and so uh, for those of you who are keeping track, Christmas is two weeks away now, two, uh, 15 days to be exact for, for those of you who uh, haven't started your Christmas shopping, for those of you who like to wait on your Christmas shopping, um, might want to start soon. Um, but, uh, but last week I got a chance to talk about the, the birth of the Messiah, right? And that's always kind of where we start with, uh, with our Christmas season. And, and there's a challenge really to talking about, talking about the birth every single year, because for me, I want to make sure I'm trying to look at it through a fresh lens, trying to do my best to, to account for all the different angles that you can look at. Cause I just don't want to say, oh, I preached this one last year. I'm going to copy and paste that into this year. Not that any of you would remember what I said at this point last year. But uh, that being said, I want to do my best to look at kind of a, uh, a, fresh, a fresh lens through everything. And so today what we're actually going to do is we are, we are going to do a deep dive into some of the, the prophecy. We're going to do a deep dive into some of the Old Testament stuff surrounding Jesus and his birth and that sort of thing. And so on the uh, on the, on the spectrum from teach to preach, sometimes I'm over here and I'm like, rah, rah, you guys got to figure this out. Let's move forward as a church, all that stuff. Sometimes we have to land over here on the teach side of things and go, go pretty deep into scripture to make sure we understand why it is that we need to do the things that we need to do. And so that being said, this morning is going to be a teach one, which as I woke up this morning and it was like 29 degrees outside, 
I was like, man, I don't know if anybody's going to want to listen to anything I have to. It's cold. Everybody wants to be at home on the couch under a blanket with some tomato soup watching the Niners beat the Seahawks at 1 o'clock, right? I mean, that's, that should be all of our goals. So I have to talk about football because if I talk about Shohei Otani, I'll cry. Um, <coughs> yeah, you baseball people. So... Uh, that being said, we are going to do a deep dive. So do your best. Rub the sleep out of your eyes. Um, if you have a, a pen and paper, take some notes. Uh, but we're going to be all over uh, uh, Scripture this morning. And so, like I said, we're going to do something a little bit, little bit different with the birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, I want to get us into kind of a proverbial time machine and travel back with me a long, long time ago, before the, birth of, before the birth of our nation, before the birth of Jesus, even all the way back to the prophets in the Old Testament that, that is hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus comes onto the scene in the manger, God used the prophets to talk about what the incarnation, uh, the God becoming flesh moment would look like and entail. How was all of this going to be able to, to, to be able to come together? And I want to do that because I think when I think about the birth of Christ, oftentimes it's through the lens of how long ago it was. It's hard for us to capture the context of what happens, right? Or what happened, rather. Because even when we're thinking about, oh, Jesus was born in a manger. I'm sure this is what a manger looked like. It was built out of old fence wood that was behind the high school house, right? Like, like that's, that's definitely what, what it looked like. And we just kind of lose some context overall about, about what, what went down because it was so long ago that God manifested humanity those thousands of years ago. We are still eagerly awaiting even as the church the second coming of Christ. And that can feel overwhelming for us. If, we, if you call yourself a Christian, if you have proclaimed that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior of your, of your life, then you should really desire that, that second coming of Jesus. And I'm probably a lot like many of you in the sense that I look at the world around me and oftentimes I'm frustrated by what I see. I'm frustrated by the culture that I see. I'm, I'm frustrated by, by the sinfulness. I'm frustrated by the selfishness, the godlessness. Every time I turn on the TV or I look at X or I look at, look at whatever social media platform it is uh, that I look at, it just seems like I am eagerly anticipating Jesus coming every single day because of how, like, like at the end of the day, how much worse can things get before God says, all right, I'm done? How much worse could things get? I'm waiting with hope for the second coming of Jesus. And I think that should be true of all, of all Christians. I think we all should be. There should be nothing more anticipatory than the hope of Jesus returning to earth so all of us who call Jesus Christ Lord would be caught up in the clouds and get to heaven one day. That should be our hope. That should be our, our desire. But as much as I am, am hopeful for that, before Jesus was born, there's actually a group of people, the Jews, that were eagerly anticipating the birth of the Savior for the first time, the coming of the Savior for the first time. And that was the hope that they rested on. We get the, we, we get the privilege of being able to look back a couple thousand years and say, Jesus was already born. The Savior already came to earth. So we already have hope fulfilled on this side of Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection. We get to look at that and we're like, hope fulfilled. And still look forward as, oh, I'm, I'm hopeful for the second coming. When is Jesus going to come back? But these people, man, they haven't even seen the Savior come for the first time yet. So this month, as we kind of celebrate the birth of our King, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, we celebrated as, uh, as a king who was born into one of the most humble, most obscure of circumstances. 
And remember, this isn't what the Jews wanted. The Jews were hoping that a Savior was going to come, and he was going to come on a, a horse, and his eyes were going to be uh, full of fire, and he was going to have a sword dipped in blood, and all these things. The, the, the picture that we see in Revelation of Jesus coming the second time, and the hope was that Jesus was going to actually flip the Roman Empire on its head, and so that way Jesus would come, and there would be an earthly ruler that was going to take care of everything that ailed the Jews at the time. And so this season, instead of that, we actually look into the darkness of a stable where animals were feeding and standing and resting and mooing and bleeding and a, and a tiny baby is born. A baby who is weak and small and unknown. He's the seed of a, former, a formerly glorious lineage that had actually fallen for almost 600 years into total obscurity. If you look at the book of Matthew, chapter 1 specifically, you'll see that lineage of Jesus. And of course, we now know this one who was born so low is exalted to, to infinite glory by the hand of God, born to reign as King of kings, born to reign as, as Lord of lords. So, so my focus largely in this message today is going to be on the, the God-ordained obscurity of the birth of Jesus. The God-ordained obscurity. And it's actually predicted by the prophets, like I said. It was worked out perfectly by the hand of God. It was decreed. It was personally worked by God for his purposes. And then the glory to which he is going to rise and he is going to bring us with him. That's the message today. So I want to start out with a phrase, a phrase that we see in Isaiah 53, specifically verses 1 through 3. And Isaiah was a prophet back in the Old Testament, hundreds, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the phrase is the phrase, like a shoot out of dry ground. This is what it says. It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This isn't a great prophecy when you think about this being about the Savior of the world, a guy who ultimately nobody is going to be drawn to, right? The imagery in that, in that prophecy is that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will be completely physically, visibly unimpressive, no majesty to attract our eye to him. Nothing in his appearance. He'll be underwhelming to the untrained eye. There'd be no radiant glory, no obvious display. And it says he grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. The text actually says that he grew up before him. And so that's an interesting way. Like, what do you mean? Who is him? Who grew up before him? It's talking about that the Messiah, the Savior, specifically we know now, Jesus Christ, grew up in the presence of God with God watching over his growth. But the growth isn't, isn't something to write home about, right? The growth was like a tender shoot, meaning weak and frail and unimpressive and like a root out of dry ground. His culture, his people, his nation were fruitless, dry. It was sterile, like a desert, no power, no glory, no prospects, a dry land with nothing alive. That's the image that we get, a dry land with nothing alive, but there is in the center of that desert a tiny shoot of hope, a little root with a small amount of activity of life, of power, but not apparently amounting to anything at all. 
That's the image that Isaiah gives us when it comes to Jesus and the Savior of the world. And so as I was thinking about this image of just like desert, everything being dry, my, my mind kind of went to a part of American history called, called the Dust Bowl. Anybody familiar with, with the Dust Bowl? Yeah. Any Okies out there, as a matter of fact? Yeah, I'm an Okie, proud Okie. Okies don't usually get to be proud about much. But what happened was in the 1930s during the Great Depression, man, uh, the, the, the Midwest for the most part, the American prairie rather, in the 1930s was a terrible era of drought, and erosion, and wind, and it was, would result in these massive clouds of dust um, that just destroyed all crops and drove a mass migration of poor farmers westward to survive. And so if you are here in California, there's quite a few Okies in California, it's because of the Dust Bowl, that everything was so bad, they're like, we're going to go west to survive. And so what happens when a whole bunch of farmers move to California? They don't move to San Francisco, Right? They moved to Hanford. And so there's a whole bunch of us in here. But as I thought about this, my mind kind of went to that. And, and John Steinbeck, many of you probably read uh, this, uh, this book back in, back in high school. He wrote uh, a classic book on this era in American history called The Grapes of Wrath. It's a terribly long movie. I fall asleep every time I try to turn it on. The book itself is a terribly long book, and I fall asleep every time I start reading it. Um, but... But that being said, he writes it, and the way that he writes it, it kind of powerfully depicts this, this desperation of farmers in the Midwest Dust Bowl where, where there is nothing that is growing. It is dry, it is desolate, and there is barely any hope left. This is what he says in part of it. He says, the wind grew stronger, whisked under stones, carried up straws and old leaves, even little clods marking its course as it sailed across the fields. The air and the sky darkened, and through them the sun shone redly, and there was a raw sting in the air. During a night, the wind raced faster over the land, dug cunningly among the rootlets of the corn, and the corn fought the wind with its weakened leaves until the roots were freed by the prying wind, and then each stalk settled wearily sideways toward the earth, pointed in the direction of the wind. The people came out of their houses and smelled the hot stinging air and covered their noses from it, and the children ran out of their houses, but they did not shout or even run about as they would have done after a rain. Men stood by their fences and looked ruined, or looked at the ruined corn, drying fast now, only a little green showing through the film of dust. The men were silent, they didn't move often, and the women came out of the houses to stand beside the men to feel whether this time the men would break. The women studied the men's face secretly, for the corn could go as long as something else remained. The children stood nearby, drawing figures in the dust with their bare toes, and the children sent exploring senses out to see whether men and women would break this time. That was the Dust Bowl tragedy. That is the heart of the Dust Bowl tragedy, the destruction of legitimately 100 million acres of farmland. Crops devastated, hopes utterly crushed, buried in these billowing massive clouds of dust. And so the powerful question Steinbeck actually raises in this is whether this time the dust storm which destroyed the corn would also break the spirit of the people and crush their hopes. That's the image that I have when it comes to the Jews waiting for the Messiah. The idea that there is nothing left. It is a desolate wasteland. 
Beyond that, 400 years had passed since the close of the Old Testament to when Jesus would arrive. And so because of that, these people, these Jewish people who've been waiting for a Savior, I can't imagine that they are clinging to much hope. It seemed like just a bunch of words and dreams probably that the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah and all these other guys who proclaimed the birth of Christ was going to happen one day just kind of felt like this idea of empty promises. Because remember, the Jews had an era of power and glory, and now it kind of seemed like none of that was ever going to come to fruition, because it had been such a long time, more than half a millennium, over a thousand years. And so ancient prophecies that seemed to have absolutely no chance of coming true of a worldwide empire in which all nations on earth would submit to the power of the son of David, the Messiah, reigning on a throne in Jerusalem. And so then we have this little lineage of David that had been desolated. It seemed like it meant nothing, apparently. The lineage of Jesse, same lineage as David, was a stump left in dry fields, as Isaiah says. Nothing was stirring. And then all of a sudden we have a holy night come upon us when Jesus was born, right? The son of God born to be king of heaven and earth. And we recognize it now because it's a holy night, right? We even sing about it, silent night, holy night. And we recognize how magnificent and incredible it was. But at the time, to those Jewish people who were clinging to hope for a savior, man, there was no hope to be found for them. I mean, even read the birth narrative again in Luke chapter 2. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. So here we have this lineage pop up again all of a sudden. This prophecy that said the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come from the line of David. Continue on, it says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The interesting thing about this passage is at the very beginning of the passage and the very end of the passage, we have two very different characters that we're going to juxtapose against each other. The very beginning of the passage, we have a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. We talked about him a little bit last week. The end of that chapter or the end of that passage of verses, we have Jesus being born. And so Caesar Augustus, again, most powerful man on earth, considered the first Roman emperor, considered one of the greatest leaders in world history. He actually established a pattern of the Roman Empire under the Caesars for centuries to come. So this guy is a big deal. He had been born, specifically his name, his birth name was Gaius Octavius, nephew of Julius Caesar. And so he, he takes the throne and he, he won total control over the Roman Empire by 31 B.C. Four years later in 27 B.C., the Roman Senate votes him Augustus, meaning majestic one. For them, that idea of majestic one implied deity, implied, God, implied godship. And so Luke, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he didn't mean it to mean that. He used that title by which he was well known. He didn't call him he didn't call him deity. 
He called him Caesar Augustus. And by the time Jesus was born, people much smarter than me tell us in 4 BC, Caesar Augustus was at the absolute height of his power. So when I say height of his power, listen to this. He ruled over 1.7 million square miles. I don't even know how to calculate that. I know it's just a big number. 1.7 million square miles, 45 million people, or about 20% of the world's population was under his domain at that time. He was so wealthy, personally wealthy, he had so much money that during there's an economic crisis going on in Asia Minor, and so what he did is he actually paid the taxes out of his own pocket for every single citizen who resided in that, in that area. Out of his own pocketbook. This guy lived in purple. He was surrounded by marble columns, dining on whatever food that he wanted to dine on. The finest meat, the best wines, like the world trembled at his slightest command. And he's the one who ordered the census to be taken in the Roman world, causing all these minor migrations to happen to people like Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem. So that's one side of the spectrum. And the other side of the spectrum we have Jesus entering the world, even though he was king of kings and lord of lords, and he came from the right hand of God and he stretched himself into skin, he was, he was God incarnate, he was born into poverty. His entire life is actually marked by poverty. He was born into an obscure Jewish carpenter in a conquered backwater town in the empire. And so the actual circumstances of his birth obviously are pretty famous for the different aspects that we see. But every single one of them are, are humble and poverty-stricken to the extreme. And so it starts out, they're forced temporarily to migrate from their home village of Nazareth. They had to travel to Bethlehem to register. That's the birth of Jesus. The son of David was in total obscurity. And probably far more distressed than would have happened if they had just been born in Nazareth with his mother Mary. She probably would have at least been surrounded by some family and some friends that could help with the birth. Instead of that, they're, they're desperately seeking a place to stay, a place where the baby could be born because her time had come and she was in the middle of childbirth at that point. And so, of course, Joseph, we know the story, couldn't find any lodging in the inn. Too many people there in this tiny town of Bethlehem. So Mary gives birth to Jesus, surrounded, it would seem, by animals, lays him in a manger, a feeding trough for livestock, instead of a royal birth that the Jews wanted. Instead of him coming and being, being wrapped in, in purple cloth, he's wrapped in cloth of the, of the lowest sort. This is a massively stark contrast to the life of Caesar Augustus that we see, the most powerful man on earth. And so the humble origins of Christ's birth were essential to God's plan. God wanted his only begotten son to be born into this level of poverty and this level of, of humility as well. It's not an accident. It was actually ordained by God. Honestly, there's no glory. There's no wealth. There's no, no power on earth that remotely compares with the kingdom of God that is going to come. But that's not how it started. Because Jesus is born into extremely low circumstances. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure there's very few babies in the world, specifically in the Western world, that as they're born, they get placed into a feeding trough. We didn't, I say we, Sarah didn't give birth here in Hanford, but I'm pretty sure Adventist Health does not have feeding troughs to place your baby into once you give birth. 
That's where the Savior of the world was born and put. And so shortly after his birth, Joseph and Mary, they flee to Egypt and the baby because they have to escape King Herod who says all the kids, all the young babies under two need to be killed. So Jesus goes from temporary migrant from Nazareth to Bethlehem to literally a refugee fleeing to Egypt to save his life. And so eventually the family, they return to Nazareth to this obscure and poverty-stricken area of Palestine where Joseph's a manual laborer. Not rich, He was a carpenter. Jesus would be too before he was presented to Israel and began his public ministry. For those of you who have watched uh, The Passion of the Christ, I don't know if you remember this part where Jesus is like the carpenter and he's joking with Mary and apparently Jesus is the one who made the first table with legs. Do you guys remember this part? Right? It's like, I don't know if there's any accuracy to that, but Savior of the world could do it. But Jesus' poverty, it actually continues throughout his entire life. He told one of the people who wanted to follow him wherever he went, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. He said, I got nowhere to sleep tonight. Don't expect any kind of earthly power or prosperity if you follow me. I've got nowhere to lay my head. But the clearest display of Jesus' poverty would actually be at the height of his fame. It's the end of his life, as a matter of fact. He's arrested, he's condemned, he's crucified. All of his worldly belongings were gambled away for the fulfillment of prophecy, right? John 19 actually says when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. And so here we have Jesus stripped bare on a cross, dying for every single one of our sins. But he gets even more poverty stricken at that point. His poverty at that moment is infinitely greater than the material because he was stripped not just of his clothes, he was stripped of all glory and all favor in the presence of God. God made him to be sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what scripture tells us. And once God transformed our guilt and our sin onto Christ, the substitute, onto Christ, the Savior of the world, he then poured out his wrath onto Jesus, justly and rightly. And God breaks fellowship with him in his role as Son of Man and as Savior. And in Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we go not just from material possession, we go all the way to to the poorest of the poor. To be forsaken by God is the ultimate poverty. And all of that Jesus came to do, poverty stricken, completely abandoned by God. He does all of that, not so we would be poor, but because of the fact that that now makes us rich. I don't think that oftentimes we remember that if you're a believer even living in this economy, even living in California, we are infinitely richer than anybody else. Right? We are, we are richer than we think we are. We're rich in forgiveness. Our sins, past, present, and future, 100% fit, paid for, forgiven by God. Rich in love because the Father and Son have lavished all their love on us, continue to lavish that love on us for all of eternity. The Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts so we would know that we are adopted and that we are loved. So Jesus became poor so that all of us who believe in Christ would then 
become rich. And so what we have here is this incredible downward journey that I've been describing here. Jesus getting lower and lower and lower and more poverty stricken and completely separated from God from glory into poverty. But the crazy thing is, is then we go back up to glory. That God, Jesus Christ, goes back up to glory in that point, and it's essential to our salvation, right? The, the origins of Christ's lineage, these humble origins of this kingdom were specifically predicted by God and specifically orchestrated by him as well, right? So if you were to look back in the Old Testament, eventually there's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, pretty famous king, king of Babylon. He reduced the lineage of David, the line of David, to the lowest level of poverty, a shoot growing out of dry ground. De- absolutely decimated it, seeming, seemingly with no future at all. Then all of a sudden, a mighty, glorious tree is then leveled until there's nothing left but a stump in the land. And then all we have is a scraggly little vine crawling on the ground, searching for water, doing its best to stay alive, finding enough to survive, but not enough to be anything other than a low, weak, leafy vine. Humbled, obscure, weak, powerless, nothing but a shoot out of dry ground. But then we go back to the birth narrative. Joseph of Nazareth was born a son of David. But Joseph's completely obscure. We hardly know anything about Joseph. That's why pastors don't talk about Joseph a lot, right? No one ever prays to Joseph because we don't know anything much about Joseph. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, like I said in Matthew chapter 1, it covers 42 generations. And this is one of the reasons genealogies are important. I know in your quiet time you get to like the book of Numbers and you get to genealogies and you're like, none of this matters. I'm going to get to the birth of Jesus. Right? But this is why genealogies are important. It covers 42 generations and these different generations are broken into three groups of 14 And so as you look at them in Matthew 1, you can see that the first 28 of them, you probably are familiar with the majority of those names if you've been a Christian for a a long period of time. You know the stories. These are stories from the Old Testament. Excuse me. But the last 14, we haven't heard of them. You don't know them. You don't know their story. You don't know where they come from. You know nothing about them. We know nothing about them. Where do they live? They live in Palestine. They live in Babylon. They live in Assyria. Like, we don't know, but they're in, the, they're in the lineage, and they're obscure, and we've never heard of them. But Joseph himself is called son of David by the angel Gabriel. Right? Remember, Joseph's engaged to Mary, right? And, and to be married to Mary, and then he finds out she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and then once he finds out she's pregnant, he's like, I'm going to divorce you because he's a righteous man, also a man with common sense, right? Because it's like, yeah, my, my future bride told me that God got her pregnant. Okay, I'm out. Red flags all over the place, right? But an angel speaks to him in a dream in Matthew 1, 20 and 21. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, appeared to him in a dream and said, listen, Joseph, son of David, David, God is establishing this lineage that he promised a thousand years before this, that your son is from the line of David. He says, he says, Uh, sorry, listen, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people 
from their sins. Son of David, a carpenter in an obscure town in northern Galilee, a despised backwater of Jewish life, a conquered people in a land that was dominated by Gentiles, especially by the Romans under Caesar Augustus with no end in sight. Another half millennia of Roman power was going to be held in that region. But what we see is from humble obscurity, this rise to infinite glory. And the, the interesting thing is, is not only do they predict this obscurity, not only the prophets, God spoke to the prophets about, about Jesus' obscurity, they also speak about his infinite glory. So listen now to Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. This is what it says. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. We talked about that, right? Shooting a dry ground. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child put his hand to the viper's nest. They'll never harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen to this part. In that day. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. That same root, that same lineage, that dry stump out of the ground continues to move forward. That's the shoot of the stump of Jesse, the king of the kingdom of heaven. The spirit of the Lord rests on him. And builds this worldwide kingdom of peace and justice and most importantly to us, righteousness. And the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge and with the glory of God. It's going to include the Gentiles because the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to the nations. They're going to rally to him. They're going to come a multitude from every single nation on earth, from every tribe and language and people and nation will rally to the banner of the root of Jesse. They'll worship him and obey him. And his place of let rest is going to be glorious. The new Jerusalem will shine, will be illuminated, will radiate with the glory of God and with the Lamb forever. I know that language is hard to decipher sometimes, but that's incredible imagery. It's awesome. God essentially says, I'm going to take this tiny little shoot and I'm going to plant it on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And this tender little sprig is going to grow into a massive cedar, a giant sequoia. It's a picture of Christ and his kingdom that God is going to establish that will reach to the very ends of the earth. And so let me ask you a question today. Let's say there's two different polls taken or two different questions in the same poll. I don't know. I don't take polls. And they're taken of the entire world. There's two simple questions. One, have you ever heard of Jesus? And two, have you ever heard of Caesar Augustus? Who do you think would win? 
How many have heard of Caesar Augustus but have never heard of Jesus? Jesus is so much more famous than the person who was once the most powerful person in the entire world. God has the power to take that lofty tree and make it low, level it, and he has the power to take the low tree and make it fill the earth with his glory. And that's what he did through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was made low and died so that fruit may come. John 12, 24 says it really, really well. Jesus says it, truly, truly, I tell you, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground or dies, talking about his own death, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ was never weaker and more obscure than when he died. But from his death has, beca- has come infinite fruit, infinite glory, spreading to the ends of the earth and spreading to the entire ends of time. So for Christmas, as it pertains to us, I want you to meditate on this. I want you to think on this rise from obscurity to glory. And oftentimes we don't think of it that way. But I just want you to think about how God worked that. He doesn't want obscurity anymore. That's not what he wants for his son. He wants his son's name to be known and proclaimed. He wants Jesus to be well known. Our responsibility, I've said it before, is for, is for, for Jesus to be well known and God to look good. That's our responsibility as Christians on this earth. And so it, our, the goal is not for Jesus to be obscure anymore. We're witnesses. We're messengers to take the name of Jesus to those who have not heard of Jesus before. God wills it through the power of the Holy Spirit that all people will hear the name of Jesus, that this gospel is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to every single nation that he would not be obscure, that Jesus' name would be famous and known. And we think about that and we're like, yeah, I want Jesus' name to be famous and I want his name to be known. But the problem then becomes is that oftentimes we just get, we get so scared or so afraid or I don't have the right answer, right? We were talking about that last week. I'm, I'm, I was teaching a class and we are talking about why is it that we don't share our faith and the number one answer was fear. I'm afraid of rocking the boat. I'm afraid I don't know what people are gonna, what people are gonna say. I'm afraid I don't know the answer to the questions that they may have. And so instead of talking to them about the savior of the world who came on Christmas to die on the cross, we, we just simply keep our mouths shut. Can I just tell you, there's no easier time to talk about Jesus than at Christmas time because every single person celebrates Christmas in the Western world. By every single, I know you're like, every single, okay. Most people celebrate Christmas in the Western world. Most people are more willing to come to church at Christmas time and Easter than any other time. We even made it easy. We said, hey, let's build a massive light show they can bring their friends to, they can bring their kids to, they can watch the light show. We got a little card inviting them to Christmas Eve. Invite your friends to the light show first. And then after that, say, hey, did you enjoy the light show? Cool, we have a Christmas Eve service. I'd love for you to come with me. I'll save you a seat but we're scared. Understand that Christ gave up all of that infinite wealth and power and glory and honor so that we could become rich 
And the reality is, is we have friends and family still living in extreme spiritual poverty. And we're not willing to share with them because we're afraid. I think about fear, I oftentimes think about the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right before Jesus was about to go to the cross. It was the night he was betrayed. And he goes and he says, hey, disciples, you stay here and pray for me for a little bit. Just keep an eye out, pray. I'm going to go off and I'm going to pray as well. Jesus comes back two times. These are the disciples, man, and they're, they're conked out on the tree. They're just asleep. Jesus wakes them up. Keep an eye out. I'm going to go pray. And Jesus, as he's sitting there praying, knowing what it is that he has to go through, knowing that he became God incarnate, God in the flesh, knowing that he was born in a barn, raised in poverty, that he was now going to have to continue this trek through what it is that he was supposed to do. And he says, God, I know why I'm here, but if there's any other way for you to just take this, please take this cup from me, if there's any other way. And the Savior of the world is afraid of what is about to come. It was too difficult for him not to do it. He refused to not do it because he recognized what was at stake. My hope and my prayer this Christmas is that we would recognize what's at stake for those people who don't know about the root of Jesse. What's at stake for those people who have not yet acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so this Christmas, continue to consider the cost of your salvation. This is a time of celebration. Let's celebrate the manger, but let's view the manger through the lens of the cross. That the entire reason the manger exists is because the, co- the cross was coming. And that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he conquered death out of poverty for our riches. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just, Christmas time is such an interesting time for the church, an interesting time for believers, because we do celebrate the fact that this is an invasion, and this is you and your son taking back what, (coughs) excuse me, what's rightfully yours. And so, God, thank you for that. But God, so often we, we just think about this in terms of, of a cute baby and the manger scene and family getting together and the birth narrative and all the different things that we already know. And God, I just pray that you would elevate our sight lines to see the cross specifically. That the manger was really just the, the beginning of all of it. And the cross was the ultimate end to be able to redeem us so we could be with you forever from this little tiny line, this shoot in the desert that you promised us something, the savior of the world, something incredible is going to come from from incredible poverty, both physical as as well as spiritual poverty. So we would never have to experience that same spiritual poverty that your son experienced. And so God, this morning, I just pray if there's people in the room who have not yet acknowledged you as Lord of the earth. 
Lord of heavens and earth has not acknowledged you as Lord of our lives, if that's you this morning, and you've just kind of been hanging on and waiting and thinking to yourself, man, church is good, but I don't know about, I don't know about committing my entire life to this thing. Can I just tell you, there is nothing greater that you can possibly do than experience the riches that our Savior has waiting for us in eternity. That he gives us peace knowing that he already won, that it's already taken care of. And he did it as he came to earth in a feeding trough. So if that's you this morning, you can just pray in the quietness of your heart. You can repeat after me and simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I know that your son came as savior of the world. And I believe, I be, I believe that he died on a cross for those sins, for my sins that I've committed and I'm committing going to commit, he took care of all of them so that we could be with him for eternity and see that I would choose to follow him every single day of my life, which includes making you look good, Father, and making your son well known. I pray today that we would make your son well known. Father, I love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.